Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. More on that in just a moment. Philippians 4, we're going to look at verses 1 through uh, 9 for a few evenings before coming back to Exodus. And especially the priestly uh, clothing, garb, and then also the priesthood itself. So Philippians 4, we'll read verses 1 through 9. We're really just going to look uh, tonight at verses 1 through 3 and uh, uh, stop there under, under a theme that will actually spill over through uh, verses 1 through 9, the whole section. Before we read it and look at it, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we uh, delight in your word, and as we study Philippians, we pray that you'll go with us in it. Teach us, remind us, encourage us, strengthen us, give us what we need, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen. Philippians chapter 4 at verse 20. Actually, we'll start reading at chapter 3, verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yordia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonable your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So again, verses 1 through 3, that's the reading of God's word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives tonight. Beloved Congregation of Hope and everyone listening tonight, as we take a look at these verses, I invite you to uh, take a look at verse 1 in particular and notice what the Apostle Paul is saying. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. The Apostle Paul is writing to the Philippians, a congregation which has brought him much joy. Philippians is called the epistle of joy or the letter of joy. But he's telling them to stand firm and he's uh, giving them not only reasons why they should stand firm, sort of motivating them, but also ways to stand firm. And as I was thinking about this, even over the course of the past uh, few weeks, it's such, this is something that is common in the Apostle Paul, talking about standing firm even in our spiritual battles. Uh, he would say that he, uh, his successful life, he kept the faith, he ran the race, he, uh, that was successful. And so just standing firm in the Lord would be described as a successful, I can use that language, Christian life. And I want us to highlight that. I, I can't think... I'm guessing every one of us as believers would love the testimony and would love to be able to say about ourselves and every believer we know, we stood firm. Things came, tornadoes rolled through, hurricanes hit the shores of our life, 
and like the wilderness, uh, which is an image of a tornado having gone through Joplin, Missouri, let's say when we were down there in 2011, the whole town looks like a wilderness where it came through, but every now and then there's a tree standing up. The leaves are gone, a lot of branches are torn off, but there's a lone tree in the midst of a lot of rubbish. And that's what a, a Christian life oftentimes looks like, just standing firm, still alive, <laughs> went through the tornado, whatever the tornado may have been, the tornado called our life, called our race that God called us to walk through. And at the end of the day, we're better off for it. We're ravaged, we're a little bit beat up, we're worse for the wear, and we're ready to go to the grave, but we're still there. We stood firm in the Lord. And we might say, what's the big reason for it? What's the pain? Why should I even think about standing firm in the midst of a big storm? Well, the Apostle Paul, if you look at verse one, says, therefore. Now, when you come across a therefore, we should ask, what's the therefore, therefore? And it's usually bringing us back, right? So look back to verse 20, what I just read. Why should we stand firm? What's he using to motivate us? What's at stake? Our citizenship is in heaven. We're waiting for a savior, the Lord Jesus. He will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by some incredible power, the same power that he's gonna use to subject all things, all nations, the whole earth, the whole universe below him. That's the same power that's gonna be used to transform our bodies. Why should I stand firm? What's, what's the benefit as it were? What's the importance of it? We belong to heaven. Jesus is coming back to get us and deliver us from this fallen world. And our lowly bodies one day will be transformed to be like Christ's own glorious body. And that's worth standing firm for. That's worth being the tree going through the tornado, staying put, not walking away, enduring through any obstacle, through any suffering, through any difficulty the Lord may providentially bring into our lives. It's worth standing firm. Now, how do we stand firm? What does it look like? Verses two to three of chapter four, it looks like working through conflict. That's part of standing firm. Verses four through seven, rejoicing, praying. That's part of our standing firm. And then pursuing holiness and thought and life, verses eight through nine. That's part of our standing firm as we run this race. So we're gonna begin by looking at verses two and three uh, and thinking about working through our conflict with other believers as part of our work of standing firm. Now, I don't know what brought about Paul's writing to the Philippians, uh, necessarily the host of reasons, right, if you read through the letter. But I know this, there are many professing Christians who walk away from the church rather than work through conflict. So that he's forcing the Philippians, Yodian, Syntyche, and this true companion, whoever that might be, to work through conflict in the context of helping them to stand firm is not much of a stretch. I'm guessing we can all sort through this. We probably, each of us, know believers, professing Christians, who have left the church because there was a difficulty and it was not worked through at all. It was not worked through well. They didn't want to work through it, or the other party did not want to work through it, and the other party was going to stay at the church and make their life miserable, so they decided to leave. Working through conflict as believers is part of what it means to stand firm. It is incredibly important. Now, I, I realize where we are. <laughs> we're in a town, we're going to another church, may actually save you time on your way to worship because I'm guessing a lot of us, myself included, have driven past other churches to come to this Christian grade school uh, gym. And thanks to the automobile, it used to be in Paul's day that you had to walk or maybe take a slow moving animal <laughs> to get to church. So if you didn't like the church in Philippi, you better learn to like the church in Philippi. <laughs> because the next church is a long way away. 
And if you were going to go 10 miles to church 200 years ago, that might be an hour or two on foot or horseback, depending on how fast your buggy was, etc. But nowadays, we can be 50 miles down the road in about 45 minutes. It's very easy to say, work through conflict. Yeah, right. But Paul's teaching, not just the Christians of Philippi, but us, that indeed we need to work through conflict. And there's more at stake than having uh, our preferences matched uh, by avoiding conflict and going somewhere where we're just constantly affirmed and no one ever challenges us. We never have to work through anything. There's more at stake, namely our standing firm. Now, conflict is just part of being a fallen human being living in this world. Titus 3 says, but by nature, we hate one another. It's reciprocal. We are hated and we also hate. When we come to Christ, that changes, but there is still conflict in all of our relationships. I'm guessing none of us would have to think very long. In our marriage, our family, our workplace, uh, we wouldn't have to think very long to come up with conflicts, small or big, things to work through. Hey, we disagree on this. Hey, let's work through it. I'm guessing by nature, most of us work through them without even hardly thinking about it. Oh yeah, not a big deal, off we go. Hey, you said this, I took it this way, what do you mean? Oh, here's what I meant, thank you, that's helpful, clarifying, let's roll. But sometimes there's conflicts where two parties become entrenched. And that's likely the situation that we're looking at here with Euodi and Syntyche. Now, Epaphroditus had gone and traveled the route from Paul to them and back, and he had gotten sick on the way. It may have been a trip there and back of, let's say, four months, it might have been a year. And that's how this uh, news would have reached Paul that indeed these sisters are having trouble working through difficulty. So it was a dispute that didn't just flare up and then work itself out in about you know, a week or two. It was something that had been going on for a while, something that was even affecting the lifeblood of the church at Philippi. And it was a prominent enough dispute, because if you remember, this is likely a fairly new church. Acts 16 records Paul's ministry there. Remember, Lydia was converted the slave girl who had the spirit of divination driven out of her, and then the Philippian jailer. So there's the start of your church. <laughs> and somewhere Clement and these other workers Paul refers to in Philippians 4 were part of the work, and Euodia and Syntyche were also part of that as well. Who knows what their role was in this church plant and the early ministry of the church of Philippi, but they were part of it in this church that was a Roman colony, uh, that was in the Roman colony of Philippi. So these are not small members. These are fairly prominent people. And the Apostle Paul calls them to work through their conflict. I want to look at the nature of the conflict, the intervention of the conflict, and the power to resolve the conflict. Those three things, and we're done. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. That's where Paul begins, trying to help them work through things. He just called it out. Now, I'm told Calvin, I've never read a sermon like this. I've probably not read enough of them. But I'm told Calvin would sometimes use people's names and just call them out. <laughs> I don't know if this was his proof text for it, but regardless, Paul did it. And as an apostle, obviously, with unique authority that no one possesses uh, today, this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, doesn't beat around the bush, doesn't say, hey, I'm going to address the situation. You can guess what I'm talking about and apply it to yourselves where it fits. He just flat out names them. Euodia and Syntyche, I entreat both of you. Notice it's an equal entreatment. I entreat Euodia, and he repeats it. I entreat Syntyche, 
to agree in the Lord. He doesn't say, hey, one of you is more at fault than the other. He just, uh, he doesn't pick sides. He doesn't try to determine who started it. He does not tell just one of them to fix the problem. He is entreating both of them. You can imagine the scene, right? You're sitting in this, I don't know how big the congregation was. We have no idea necessarily. Maybe in a house church that's fairly substantial by this point, And all of a sudden your name's read out. <laughs> you might be thinking, oh wow, this is, uh, this is quite, that's an application. How do you like that? That is an application driven home. And uh, we don't know what they were thinking. We don't even know much about the situation, which makes it very universally applicable. I want to mention what we don't know. We don't know if each person was equally at fault or if one was more at fault. Paul does not tell us what he thinks of who is more at fault. Paul urges them with equal urging, and this stands for a host of disagreements then which can arise in the church. And before we walk into this a little more, I want to clarify something maybe for our sanity in a difficult situation. There are some situations which believers can find themselves in where they have done virtually nothing to contribute to a conflict. They have not caused it. They have not furthered it. And so far as depends on them, they have tried to live peaceably with the person whom they are now finding themselves in conflict with, but they have wanted part of it. They have been brought into something against their will, and now they have to manage and work through a conflict. I don't know if this is particularly a helpful passage for that, although I think the principles are there. But I think we could go to other passages, Matthew 18, etc., maybe dealing with somebody who might be contentious in their spirit. But the way this passage looks on the surface has caused a lot of people, and I think rightly so, to say, these are two people who have now contributed to the conflict. They have a problem. They both need to work through it, and they're both tangling with each other. So we might say they're equally at fault. Maybe one started it, but the other's response has been horrible, and now they're deeply entrenched here. And so I don't want any of us to think, oh, if I'm in conflict with somebody, that means I must be equally as bad a guy Maybe so. Maybe, maybe we are that person. Maybe we're the one who started it. But I also want to vindicate people or at least validate folks who might be saying, I've actually done nothing to do this. That is possible. It doesn't always take two to tangle. It doesn't always take two people to start conflict and further it. So that is a side note. And if we find ourselves in that realm, Romans 12, 18 can be really helpful. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Give it a shot as much as we can. Let's try and work through the conflict. Now, Paul entreats both Euodia and Syntyche to work through their conflict, to agree in the Lord. Doesn't say, hey, you guys have to have identical views on things, whatever they're disagreeing about. But he says, I want you to agree in the Lord. In other words, remind yourselves that you belong to the Lord. Remind yourselves that you're believers. Find your points of unity. Remind yourselves that you're part of the same kingdom. So if you're going to disagree with each other, you're going to do it well. You're going to do it generously. You're going to do it kindly. And you can find your points of agreement. So that's what he's encouraging them to do. And I would argue from this passage that with Euodian Syntyche, we often find ourselves in conflicts in which there is something we can personally own as our fault. There is something we can actually do in order to work toward reconciliation. Not always, but I think most of the time, whether it be small or something really big, we can usually discover or find something that we say, yep, I'm, I, I sinned here. I miscommunicated here. I made a mistake here. 
I have not treated this other person well here. And when we find those areas, then Paul's entreatment comes to bear. We need to find a way to agree on the Lord with them. We need to do what we can as God's people to further reconciliation with this individual. Another way of putting it is this. There are only three persons in the world who can claim that they never started any trouble. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And I'm, I'm not saying this just to make a point. We are all capable of sin. We're all capable of miscommunication. We're all capable of not treating someone well with whom we might have a disagreement. That has not happened in the Godhead. God is perfect. Everything he does is perfect. God the Father is perfect. God the Son is perfect. And God the Holy Spirit is perfect. And we started a quarrel with him, a conflict. 100% one-sided, right? 100% our fault. God doesn't even have 0.001% of fault in this. We picked the fight 100% ourselves. And now God in his grace and unfathomable love has said, on my own, because I am a God of love, I am going to reconcile myself to the people whose names I've written in the book of life, to forgive their sins, to transform them from my enemies to servant-hearted worshipers in order that my heaven might be filled with those who praise my name because I'm a God of love. God has done that all on his own. He has sought initiative. He has initiated reconciliation with us, beloved. Now that is tremendous because our God was under no obligation to do that. He had no obligation, nothing outside of himself that said, you need to go save these people. His reason for saving us came from him. And he's done this all for our benefit. We've contributed nothing. If that's who our God is, I think that communicates to us something, that we need to do whatever we can as those who are peacemakers, right? Blessed are the peacemakers, they shall be called sons of God. As those who've been born again, to seek to reconcile with those that we may have a conflict with. It's really easy to say, I don't see my wrong in this. It's a mess. I don't want to clean it up. Our God could have said that too. And he could have said, it's a mess. I'm going to get rid of creation and start over. I'm going to wipe these people out. There will be no heaven for them. There will be nothing but hell for everyone who ever lives. He could have said that. But God came to us because he desires a relationship with us. And he said, I'm saving these people. Well, but that's amazing. I think it also has to affect how we look at promoting peace in his church and working through conflict in the church of Jesus Christ among his blood-bought children with his blood-bought children. Now, second, the intervention of the conflict. <clears throat> Verse three, yes, I ask you also, true companion, Help these women. Now, gallons of ink spilled. Who's the true companion? Who is it? Epaphroditus? Maybe. Uh, so There's been a host of names which have been offered. Ultimately, we have no idea uh, who this true companion is. There's been uh, nothing definitive that has come out. But you can imagine what this may have been like if you're sitting in this worship service, again, hearing this for the first time. Oh, great, we have a letter from Epaphroditus. He's reading it. Wow, I've got to help in this. I've got to be involved in this. Now, we know from Proverbs 26, 17, that involving ourselves in the quarrel 
in one sense is not a good idea. Whoever meddles in a quarrel not his own is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. Okay, so what's going on with the person in Proverbs 26, 17? That's wrong. The person is meddling or seeking out controversy. They want it. They're the kind of person that just loves involving themselves in things that are really none of their business. That's one problem. And then they're meddling in something which has nothing to do with them and is really none of their business at all. And so that's what Proverbs describes as someone who is basically foolish, looking for fights, looking to force people to work through things, even though they bring almost no gift into the table. That individual is like having a dog by the ears. Now, if you've ever had a rabid dog by the ears, you know that is not a good situation to be in, right? It's a pretty simple picture. You have a dog by the ears. If you hold on, you are in for a ride. Like that dog is not going to, that dog will outlast any human being. That dog is not going to stop. So you can hold on for a ride and you will be exhausted and tired and you can let go and that will become its own problem <laughs> because now that dog will have at you. That is the portrait of someone who walks into working with people in order to help them work through their conflict, but the person actually has oftentimes a thirst for conflict themselves and they bring more heat than light and they're not helpful. This true companion that Paul's referring to asking them to help is someone who's been commanded to do it. No doubt someone who's been gifted by the Lord to do this work and someone who with those gifts is being compelled to use their gifts. Not someone seeking this out, but someone compelled to use their gifts. Now, let's just look at this for a moment. In one sense, all of us as Christians are supposed to be able to do this. We're all peacemakers, right? Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called sons of God. We've all known what it is to have peace with God. We all know what it is to have our hearts set at peace with, with our Heavenly Father. And that is tremendous because our peace in horizontal relationships and our ability to help people in their horizontal relationships is very often tied and very often formed by our peace with God and how we are feeding on that. So a non-Christian is gonna have a very difficult, if not impossible time being this sort of peacemaker. I remember a, a friend who was about 25 to 30 years older than me, his name was John French. We met at Dural Electric when I was in Denver. He had a motto that said, I spread hate and discontentment. If you asked what he was up to, he would, he would respond by saying, I'm spreading hate and discontentment. That's what he did. He actually liked doing that. I'm not sure why. I wasn't a believer at the time and uh, kind of overlooked it, but that was his life. As believers, we are the opposite. We are people who desire that relationships be at peace, that we be at peace with other believers and that other believers be at peace with themselves and work through things. So indeed, in one sense, we are, are all to be involved in this work of helping folks work through things if they can't work through themselves. At the same time, we're not all equally gifted. We don't all have the same gifts. And there will be situations where we see maybe two believers are at conflict and we can pray. And maybe we can tell others, hey, I think this is going on. Maybe you can help or we can try and be an influence, but we will not be the ones involved in it. We will not be the ones to actually do this. We don't have the gifts. Uh, we're not able to de-escalate conflict. And we find ourselves like a fish out of water. But beloved, are we willing to be helpful in having other believers who may have a conflict work through it? Now this can apply, of course, right really close to home, right? Marriage, family. 
This can apply to fellow brothers and sisters, siblings in the church, in a local church. This can apply to believers who are not part of the same church we're a part of. Wide application. Other believers in the workplace, right? Are we willing? Do we have a desire? We should. To help people work through those things and be useful to that end, even if we're not the true companion who's called to actually go and uh, do the brunt of the work and helping them resolve things. And then third, the power to resolve conflict. The Apostle Paul says, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. The Apostle Paul begins, and I think this is helpful, by affirming that Euodia and Syntyche did some great work. He didn't say, yeah, these ladies are just, they've lost it. They need drastic help, right? Step in. He said, no, these, these are actually fellow laborers, along with Clement and my other fellow workers. They were big in my work when I was in the Church of Philippi. They were involved in this, in the spread of the gospel or hospitality, whatever they were involved in. They were involved in it. And I want you to help them. I don't think that's accidental, beloved. Finding common ground, common interest, points of unity and agreement can be very helpful in resolving conflict. That's way different than personal bashing, personal attacks, and actually pitting people against each other. Paul is providing them the very soil to actually work through their conflict. Hey, Yodians and Tiki could say to each other, yeah, we are on the same team. We love the Lord. We've worked together. We've encountered a difficulty. I think we can work through this. But it's incredible what the Apostle Paul is providing them through the work of the Holy Spirit. And then he speaks of something which seems so out of whack, <laughs> so offhand, it almost looks like he's changing the subject. He says regarding Euodia and Syntyche, Clement and these other fellow laborers, that their names are written in the book of life. Now the book of life, Exodus 32, 32, Moses pleads with God for the sake of the Israelites and asks God to blot him out of God's book instead of blotting out the Israelites. That's a sort of reference to the book of life. Psalm 69, 28, David asks that his enemies be blotted out of the book of the living. Revelation 3, 5, the saints who conquer are guaranteed that they will never be blotted out of the book of life. And what we read this morning, Revelation 21, 27, only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life will enter the new Jerusalem. So Paul just brings up this almost random reference to the book of life in the midst of helping them deal with conflict, what's going on. There's a passage in Luke 10, which we've looked at before, where Jesus sends out the 72 and they come back. And when they come back, they are enamored. Lord, we have cast out demons. We have done some powerful things. This is amazing. And Jesus virtually changes the subject. I saw Satan fall like lightning. What? <laughs> we've been casting out demons. We've been doing things in your name in a powerful way. Why are you talking about Satan now and falling out of heaven? What is going on? And what Jesus was doing is trying to get them to see something. That Satan's pride is what got him cast out of heaven. And these 72 disciples were going out indeed in Jesus' name, but it's very tempting to start finding your identity and taking pride in how successful your ministry is. And he says, don't rejoice in those things, how useful you are in ministry. Don't rejoice that the demons are subject to, to you. Rejoice that your names are what? Written in the book of life. Whoa. 
In other words, Jesus is saying, don't go out and try and find your identity in the success of your ministry. Find your identity, find your worth in the fact that your name is secure in the book of life, that you are a saved individual and you will be in heaven among God's children when it's all over. How does that help us in flipping back to Philippians 4? I think Paul is doing this. He wants everybody to know, Euodia, Syntyche, the true companion helping, and everybody else in the church who's got to watch this conflict unfold, I want you to know your names are written in the book of life. You've got to, you've got to have that grounding that's so helpful for working through conflict. Let me illustrate this. You ever seen road rage work? <laughs> Simple one. Not going to get into any details. Maybe you've watched some videos. People, I think it escalates even to shooting sometimes. People getting into fights, uh, whether in the car or sometimes they'll stop the car and get out of the car. What's going on? Well, it starts right almost always with somebody cutting us off. We probably have that in our own hearts. How dare you? <laughs> Can't believe this. Now, what are we upset about? At worst, what, what is happening when somebody cuts us off? We are now going to arrive at our destination three, four seconds later. Are we really ticked about losing that three or four seconds? No way. No way. Maybe we had our breakfast cooked faster when we were making our eggs on the stove and we saved 10 seconds there. Losing that three or four seconds is not a big deal. What's going on? Why can people become so enraged about losing that, because what's really being communicated by the person who cuts you off, even though they not, may not be trying to, what are they saying? My time in my life is more valuable than yours. What do the person who's cut off, what do they feel? Oh, you think that your time in your life is more valuable than mine and my kids in the car and my family members? Wow, no it's not. And so what happens? The horn comes out. Again, <laughs> is the horn blaring because we are upset that we lost three seconds? Because if you look at the car in front of the one that just cut us off, instead of being two seconds behind them, now we're just five seconds behind them. Are we that upset that we lost three seconds? No. If we think clearly through this and not have our identity wrapped up in what just happened, we could work through it fairly quickly, right? Okay, I lost three seconds, no big deal. Maybe they're in a bigger hurry than I am. I need to love my neighbors as I love myself. I've cut people off, on we go, right? But what happens is it escalates. How? People wrap their identities up in the conflict and they can no longer parse it out anymore. And so a disagreement at church isn't about, I don't know, I've seen one over curriculum 10 years ago. And all of a sudden now, it's not just a question about, hey, what are we gonna use in a church plan for Sunday school curriculum? Now it's people who are arguing because what they feel is, if I don't get this curriculum, what I'm telling the other person is that they're more valuable to God than I am. And I can't live with that. They've grounded their identity in winning the argument. And so what do believers... Originally, a disagreement is over an issue. Eventually, it becomes about the worth of the person. And instead of working through an issue, the people have so bound their identities up with the issue that to change your mind would be akin to saying, you're more important than me to God. Your life is more valuable than mine. I am nothing and a nobody, but you are a somebody and extremely valuable in the kingdom. And that just grates against our hearts. It's identity found at the wrong place. How is this helpful in disagreeing? If we find ourselves in the midst of a conflict, it will be helpful this way. If my name is written in the book of life, 
and I am a secure, saved child of God. And that will never go away, no matter if none of my ideas in the church, no matter if any of the conflicts are ever resolved that make me look good, and no matter if I'm always the one at fault, if I'm sure that I will never lose my salvation, that's where my, my identity lies, then I can walk through conflict. And I can be okay with saying, yeah, this is my fault. I messed up here. And I can own that because my identity is not found in winning the conflict. Tremendously helpful, beloved. How about for the person that we disagree with? It's not only helpful for them, it's helpful for us as we may disagree with them. This is a person whose name is written in the book of life. Yodia would have to say of Sintiki, she's a, she's a child of God. Her identity is not bound up in winning this, or it shouldn't be. I'm not going to even view her that way. We are just dealing with an issue at stake. We're not dealing with who's a more valuable person. We're not dealing with who's more or less saved. We have an issue at stake. We're just going to work through it like that. And so I can be respectful, loving, and caring of someone that I may disagree with. And then if we're the true companion, the arbiter, the third party, two ways we can be benefited by understanding that our names are written in the book of life. Number one, we don't have to go rescue somebody and then be hopeless if the conflict ends in disaster. Oh, we, never, we didn't accomplish it, we weren't good enough. We don't have to be hopeless. No, my name's written in the book of life too. The second thing is we can help people who are in conflict to see that regardless of the outcome, one person is not more valuable than the other. We can help them see that in the midst of conflict. Look, everybody's equally saved. We're believers. This is an issue. This is not a matter of identity. If there are any who don't believe, whether here or people we encounter, one thing this passage helps us with, along with just looking at the world in general, is our identities as human, as human beings are just on very shaky ground. It does not take much to rattle us. You can see it in driving. I mean, something as simple as driving that I mentioned. We can see it in the workplace. One or two words flipped around in their order, said with a different tone because somebody didn't get their morning coffee soon enough, can actually turn us completely upside down, right? As human beings, we are a fragile group in our identities. And if you don't know Christ, if somebody doesn't know Christ, all the more so fragile because they're looking for security and identity in something in this world. And what do we know about everything in this world? It is fragile too. And it will always let us down. People, jobs, all of it. Cars <laughs> will wake up in the morning and the thing won't start. Let down. The only place to find any security, the only place to find any true identity that will matter, that will provide you hope, is to look to Jesus Christ. To have your name written in his book. That's the book that's going to be opened on the last day. And if your name is in it, you have life. You will go into heaven, and if your name is not in it, you will be in everlasting destruction. And the way to know is my life, is my name written in it or not, is do you believe in Jesus? If you believe in Jesus, your name's written in there. If you refuse to believe to your dying day, your name's not written in there. So what's on you or what's on those who don't know the Lord is that they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. For those of us who are believers, let me close with this. Imagine if someone were perfect, holy, obedient, never once having sinned. And then at the end of their life, they are numbered with the transgressors, considered and counted among the most despicable human beings alive. And while counted as such, they cried out for the forgiveness of those who were mistreating them. And imagine if this person did it for you and for me. 
What kind of person would exchange their righteous, holy, obedient identity with the identity of sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors? What person would say, you know what? It's their fault, but I'm going to take it and not let it be my fault. It's all their fault. But Father, I want you to treat me like I'm the one who's at fault for everything they did. Jesus did that. He took our identity upon himself so that our identities could be secured and written in the book of life before the foundations of the world. Now that's life-changing. We have a God who would do that for us, for me. We have a God who would do that for sinners like us. So now having our names written in the book of life is tremendous. It's amazing. It's wonderful. And now we can be a people who don't resolve conflict by attacking someone's identity, but we can respect them, work through what is really going on, so that we and those around us might stand firm in the faith. Let's pray.